Well, good morning, everybody. As Jinha said, we're back here again. And uh, it was one of those things where yesterday we, Jinha and I were gathered around the uh, around the, the, the laptop watching the news. And as soon as Danny Andrews made that announcement, we're like, okay, here we go again. <laughs> and I guess the upside is that um, we can have church in the comfort of our homes and um, in our PJs for one more week. And uh, hopefully... Uh, this will be done by Wednesday, and and we can resume um, we can resume our our, our normal routines. Um, no, I just check it. Like, if you don't have to stand there the whole time, like you can. Okay, all right. Yeah, um, one of the challenges of not having a banner behind us is that, or, or having this view, is that we can't escape. The other person can't escape. <laughs> but um, Jinha is going to be a moral support as uh, as we go through this. Well, uh, before we start, why don't we have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father God, as we talk about this topic of uh, the gift of knowing ourselves, I just want to pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would bring our hearts in tune with you, and that as we seek you, and as we make commitments to seek you, that you would... Um, reveal to us truth about ourselves, truth about you, and uh, may we come to a deeper understanding of, of our purpose and your purpose for our lives. So we thank you for hearing our prayers. We ask this in your name. Amen. So this morning, <coughs> oh, that wasn't good. So this morning, I want to ask you, what do you think is the key to developing uh, spirituality? Um, the modern Christian response would probably sound something like uh, the key to developing spirituality is to know God. And this morning I want to say that while that's true, knowing yourself is equally as important as knowing about God, or as, is equally as important as knowing God. Uh, one can know lots of information about God and yet experience a disconnect um, with how that information relates to one's own life. There was a famous theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Do you know what I just realized? Uh-huh. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I did something wonky. Ah, there we go. Do I have to do that each time? Hold on, let me just fiddle with this real quick. Yes, because I didn't set, I don't, we don't have the... Oh, we don't have the clicker. You know, this is going to be really tricky. Sorry, folks. No, it's not going to make a difference. Okay, anyway. Bear with us as we uh, adjust. We forgot to have the uh, the clicker. Okay, um, so Karl, Bar Karl Barth is known um, as one of the most influential theologians and ethicists in the in the 20th century, and he famously wrote a commentary um, on the Book of Romans, along with a four-volume theological summary entitled Church Dogmatics. Um, the six-million-word manuscript included teachings of the doctrine, uh, the doctrine of God's Word, a doctrine of God, creation, and the doctrine of salvation, or what he calls reconciliation. Barth also uh, authored something called the Behrman Declaration, 
And this basically was adopted by Christians who opposed the German Christian movement. And the German Christian movement was basically a movement that tried to um, bring in Nazi uh, ideology into the German Protestant church. And uh, back in those days, uh, there was a state-run church. And so um, the German Christian movement was highly, highly influential. And Karl Barth made a stand to say this is wrong, and he opposed it and wrote the Berman Declaration. Now, what I want to highlight is that here is this spiritual giant. (coughs) Excuse me. Karl Barth was known as a spiritual giant, and he became so well-known not only in the church but in uh, mainstream culture that Time magazine uh, placed him as... uh, Placed him as he they featured Karl Barth in the April issue um, in 1962 of Time magazine. So here is a guy who knew so much about the knowledge of God, and yet in 2017 there were personal letters that were written between uh, Barth and his secretary uh, Charlotte von Kirschbaum, and these letters revealed this decades-long affair between these two individuals and the strange nature of this relationship um, was was more that Barth, Barth, excuse me, Karl Barth had his secretary move into his household and his secretary lived with him, his wife and his children from 1929 to 1966. Now it's as if the whole world turned a blind eye to this strange arrangement in the Barth household and it was almost as if it was okay that this had happened because he had made such significant contributions um, to theology and to the church and so at the same time when you look at this there's something incredibly wrong about this picture see Barth knew about God but when you read how he justifies adultery um, in his letters to his wife and to his mistress The guy is simply unable to see what's going on in his heart. Um, It's really interesting. Uh, In Barth's own mind, his relationship with Kirschbaum felt so right, he was just convinced this must be from God. Now, spirituality doesn't come from simply knowing about God. Um, I think it's an error to simply think that because we are Christian and we outwardly subscribe to Christian values, and we have a theoretical understanding of how God works, that we are okay. Some of you have seen the news this week of Ravi Zacharias, and Ravi Zacharias was, he was the head of the largest uh, Christian apologetic organization in the world, and he passed away last year, and, um, and, and I guess the news has been out for, for a bit, but this week it, was, it, it gained a bit of traction. And basically it turned out that for, for decades, Ravi Zacharias, um, he, um, he had a history of misconduct and abuse. And that's to put it simply. And so, <clears throat> once again, spirituality does not come alone from just having a simple working knowledge of God or a deep knowledge of God. Um, It requires a knowledge of self. And I guess on the opposite end of the spectrum, simply having a deep knowledge of yourself is not enough either. 
Uh, let me see if I can get the next slide here. John Paul, John Paul Sartre popularized this term existentialism in the 1940s. And basically, this idea states that um, an, an individual explores the meaning of their life, and there's this journey of self-discovery in hopes of finding meaning and purpose. And sometimes this search for uh, or the search for understanding existentialism leads to what we would know, uh, what we're familiar with as an existential crisis. <coughs> and that's when individuals evaluate their life, they come to an understanding of themselves, an understanding of the world, and they are not able to find meaning and purpose. The knowledge of self outside of the context of a knowledge of God also does not produce spirituality. There is this interdependence of the knowledge of self and God that leads to spiritual growth. There's a passage here in Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 9 and 10 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So here in this text, we are reminded that we cannot know ourselves fully outside of the knowledge of God. And conversely, Matthew chapter 5, verses 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so as there's a deeper understanding of ourselves, as there is a in-tunement with our own hearts, there's an honesty of heart, there's a clear vision and a clear understanding and perception of who God is. Spirituality is developed as there's a transformation of self that occurs when God and self are deeply known. I'd go one step further and say that there is no deep knowing of God unless there is a deep knowing of self. The opposite is also true. This idea has long been um, a part of Christian theology. In history, when you look at some of the Christian theologians, John Calvin wrote, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Augustine also said, "Grant, Lord, grant that I, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. While there hasn't been some theological debate that has um, occurred over this idea, the modern era of Christianity tends to emphasize one or the other uh, parts of these two interdependent um, ingredients. The tendency of the church, from my perspective, is that we tend to emphasize a knowledge of God. Um, and then, of course, the secular wor world would say, uh, if you want to understand yourself, then go to therapy. And while I think that um, therapy, counseling, and many other services uh, provided for mental health are needed and valuable, um, there's also something to be said about um, combining a knowledge of self and God in the context of a spiritual journey. Now, what do I mean when I say developing spirituality? How is this different from mental health? The World Health Organization defines mental health 
as a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work product- productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. I think mental health is really important. And I want to be clear, this sermon is not an anti-health sermon. When I say it's important to become a spiritual person, uh, what I mean by that is that spirituality is a process of transformation of the inmost part of the human being, the heart. It is being formed or transformed in such a way that the heart's natural expression are the deeds of Christ done in the power of Christ. There are moments when you can make a decision out of mental health and um, or out of a good place of mental stability, and yet the decisions are not necessarily spiritual decisions. Or conversely, you might be in a really good place spiritually and make a decision, and that decision um, may come across as abnormal. Spirituality develops into what David Benner calls transformational knowing, uh, which requires a strong connection between our knowledge of God and ourselves. And I'm just repeating the same idea over and over again. Now, transformational knowing occurs when beliefs become experiences. It's one thing to believe that God is a forgiving God. It's something entirely different to experience forgiveness for ourselves and to be able to forgive those around us consistently. It's also one thing to believe that selfishness is sin. It's something completely different to experience the freedom that comes from uh, living a life of giving. Benner states that transformational knowledge is always personal and never merely objective. And I find that um, David Benner's observation of uh, experiential knowledge is, is quite profound in that he's saying that Belief becomes experience when knowledge is subjective. Knowledge has to be personal. It has to be subjective in order for it to be transformational. Now, this probably sounds counterintuitive because we value objective truth. We want everyone to see, uh, we want everyone to have, um, uh, to come to a conclusion. Yes, this is right. And so when it comes to the idea of God, we don't want God to be subjective. We don't want to say, when you know, you just know, because that's just not a very good defense of faith. Over the past few years, uh, the flat earth theory has gained some traction, and it's really interesting to read the debates that happen online between um, the flat earth community and the rest of the world. The problem with this debate is that objective truth is too far removed from most of us, and it requires someone with subjective experience to give us some perspective on this debate. So in January 9, 2020, um, Jessica Meir posted this picture of Earth from the International Space Station, and she tweeted this picture And um, she was just saying, it's amazing to see uh, the changes of uh, what happens in Earth's atmosphere as as they kind of orbit the Earth. And of course, because she tweeted this, um, many people responded to her tweet. And so here's some tweets from the 
uh, flat earth theorists. Why do you guys always use fisheye lenses? Another tweet went, Imagine lying to billions of people and pretending to be an astronaut. Your life must really suck. Now, for me personally, when I see someone's subjective reality, like I've never been to space, I've never looked at planet Earth, or I've never orbited planet Earth, I can't, I haven't seen the round curvatures of planet Earth. But when I see somebody's subjective experience, I would say, yep, that makes sense. Now, of course, um, because, because this knowledge is subjective, people are going to reject it. See, transformational knowledge must be subjective in nature because transformational knowledge is subjective. It requires buy-in. It requires an openness to the seeker of truth. It requires interaction with that knowledge from the seeker of truth. Another example would be the idea of love. Now, I know that my wife loves me because of my experience with her. The development of that love requires a, it required a commitment from my end prior to the encountering of her love. It took sacrifice, time, going out on dates, arguing, counseling, more arguing, and the journey produced something that is not only stable but enjoyable. Now, in quick review, transformational knowledge is subjective in nature, and experiential knowledge requires buy-in, commitment, and openness. And this brings me to the third point of transformational truth. It cannot be proven. When I, while I can describe Jinha's love to someone else, I can't prove it. When Jinha and I were dating, uh, there was this person who was convinced that Jinha was in love with her crush, that crush not being me. She repeatedly told me, Jinha does not love you. She loves someone else. And she was from the most genuine place in her heart, fully believed that um, Jinha was in love with somebody else. Now, try to imagine these conversations taking place. If it sounds nuts, it was nuts. <clears throat> I could not convince her otherwise. I would say to this young lady, um, we've been dating for a year. And she would respond, no, she doesn't love you. Uh, we're now engaged. Roy, she doesn't love you. Uh, we're going to move to Australia. Roy, you're making a big mistake. Hopefully now that Jinha and I have been married for eight years and we have two kids um, that this woman is convinced. But who knows? My point is that there's certain knowledge that can never be proven, but it doesn't make it any less true. It's possible. Oh, the question then is, how do we move from this idea of simple belief to experience? How do we have a personal working knowledge of God? Coming in con or excuse me, God in his word invites us to go on this journey with him. God wants you and I to embark on this path of discovery. If you ask God, God, reveal yourself to me. Through the events of your life, 
God will begin to teach you and reveal himself to you. There's this really potent passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Because God knows our hearts, he's going to do everything to lead us into a closer relationship with him. And so as we put our trust in God and we say, God, lead me, show me who you are, God will then guide and interact with us. And what ends up happening is that we begin to become in tune with our own hearts, our own motives, our own desires, and thus spirituality is developed and belief moves into an experience. There's another potent passage here in Psalm chapter 37, verses 3 and 4. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's something incredibly profound in this passage. And that is that even though we know what we like, there are certain deep desires that cannot be known outside of a connection with God. And so God then asks us to trust him first, to do good first, to walk with him first. And as a result, God will then reveal to your heart your true desires. And there comes a deeper satisfaction of that desire or the, the, the fulfillment of that desire in the context of a relationship with God. A couple months ago, um, I started looking for uh, a replacement car. And because we were in lockdown, many of you didn't know that uh, at the end of 2019, I bought a sports car. I was preparing for my midlife crisis, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a car that, like, it's like the high school car, the, 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 the car in high school... Uh, the time in high school where I would grow up and say, man, I wish I could drive a car like this. I thought, I'm going to do it. And so I bought a two-door Toyota 86. And this was like the coolest looking car that I've ever owned. And so when the kids saw the car, they were super excited. It was one of those uh, tiny cars that have two small seats in the back. And the kiddos are young enough to be able to fit. And they were just, they were super happy. Um... Now, the one downside is when myself, Jinha, Micah, and Joshua would pile into this car, it was pretty uncomfortable. And not only that, the suspension was very stiff. And so every, like any bump in the road, you would feel just everything. And as I was driving, I would hear, I would hear these deep sighs coming from the passenger seat in the front. And even though Jinha was happy for me to be happy, it, it just, it wasn't a comfortable ride. <laughs> and so... When um, when we exited the pandemic and we started driving around a lot more, I realized, you know what, this is not an ideal family car. I need to get something else. And it just so happened that um, the the used car market is really good right now. Some people say that uh, the used car market has gone up like 36%. In other words, if you have a car, the value of it is greatly increased because of a shortage of vehicles. And so I sold the car and I started looking for a replacement car. Or excuse me, I started looking for a replacement car first before I sold this car. Now, for a couple months, 
I was making multiple inquiries and um, the first car there was a Volkswagen Jetta and I was talking to the owner and he said hey look come Monday I have to go to a funeral but after the funeral I'm happy to catch up with you and for me I just I thought oh the person just lost a loved one I don't want to be that person that's like can I buy your car can I buy your car can I buy your car and so I just told him look just tell me tell me when you're free like Wednesday works for me and he said look Thursday would work better for me so I said okay I'll come by Thursday and see the car well I give him a call Thursday morning and he said oh I sold the car yesterday to someone who came and, and looked at it I was very very frustrated like I had asked the guy can I come on Wednesday he said no and then he let somebody cut in front of me and that person bought the car on site so I was pretty upset for about 48 hours and during that time we had caught up with other friends um, I remember sharing the story with Lily saying oh man I'm so upset that this guy sold the car to someone else he, he let someone cut in front of me and she turned to me and she said you know it means that God has something better in mind for you and like here is my parishioner giving me a spiritual lesson on how God works and I and you know outside I was like yeah it's true you know you know God God has something better in mind but inside I was like who are you to tell me what God wants and and I was, I was grumbling grumpy that that the person sold the car so this happened two more times where the I would call the person and the person would sell to somebody else before I had a chance to see the car or the seller would let somebody cut in line in front of me to, to purchase the car. And I was just I was so angry for like about a month straight. And you can ask Jinha, I was just, I was Mr. Grumpy Pants for a while. And, you know, in the midst of this car buying process, you know, th there was a moment where I just kind of, decided to pray you know I, I actually i haven't made this whole car buying thing a matter of prayer and it just come it sounds silly like if you have money you go to the place you find the car you like it you buy it it's not really a spiritual thing and you know i, I went into prayer just because i was so upset and in the midst of prayer like i just felt god saying roy you care too much about this like why are you so emotionally invested in something like buying a car, but you're not emotionally invested as much in the well-being of your children or the well-being of the church? And, you know, where is your heart right now? Like, how much time are you spending looking for vehicles as opposed to doing things that I want you to do? And, you know, there was kind of like this aha light bulb moment where I just felt like, God, you're right. Like, I... I need to reprioritize my life. I just need to calm down a bit. I need to surrender this and just kind of reassess where my heart is at. And and during this week-long period, um, it kind of led me to do some soul-searching, and I just realized that um, I needed to surrender my heart once again. And, you know, the strangest thing happened. As soon as that happens, like literally maybe one week later that third car where the dealership had sold the car to somebody else they call me back and they say hey the guy that bought the car the finances didn't work out do you still want the car and i went to go see it it was a great car long story short we purchased the car and i just kind of thought now that is really really interesting and 
And what I realized, or what I learned by talking to the to the dealership, is that I had been the first person to ask to see this wagon that we own, and um, somebody called right after I had called, like I had said I'm coming tomorrow to go see the car. Somebody from Queensland cut in front of me and said I'll buy the car sight unseen, and after that person had called, three other people had called saying we want to see the car. And so, if that guy hadn't cut in front of me from Queensland, then the car would have been sold to somebody else anyway because they would have cut in front of me before I would have seen the car the next day. And、um, basically, the dealership called me first and said, "Hey, finances fell through." And that whole frustrating experience—if、um, it didn't happen, we wouldn't have the car that we have right now. And so, it was just—it was kind of interesting to see the way that things panned out, but also. Um, how God used the experience to just kind of tap on my shoulder and just kind of say, "Hey, I just want you to spend some time reflecting with me for a moment." There's this incredible journey that God wants us to take us on—a discovery of knowing ourselves, a discovery of knowing God's heart, and as a result, there's this maturing that takes place. In closing, I want to share one more passage with you.、Uh, it's Mark chapter eight, verses twenty-seven to thirty-seven, <clears throat> and in this passage, we're going to see Jesus's interaction with his disciples in regards to his own identity, and we're going to see what God really wants in a relationship between Himself and us. So Mark chapter eight verses twenty-seven to thirty-seven, and I'm just going to narrate this. I've got the verse on the screen,、um, so I won't read every single verse, but you can follow along as as I narrate. So Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, "Who do people say that I am?" They reply, "Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and some other prophets." Verse twenty-nine. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, "You are the Messiah." Peter answered, "You are the Messiah." And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, this is a really interesting interaction between Jesus and his disciples, because Jesus asks them about his identity, and when they get the answer correct, "You're the Messiah. You're the Anointed One. You're the Son of God." Jesus tells them, "Okay, don't tell anybody else about me." Now, for me, I would think that this is the whole purpose of Jesus's mission. He wants planet Earth and all all the inhabitants of planet Earth to know that He is the Son of God, that He's the Messiah, that He is the one that's going to bring about salvation. So then, why would He say, "Don't tell anybody about me"? And the reason is because Jesus. Is not interested in objective truth. It's not enough for the world to acknowledge that he is the Son of God. It's not enough for the world to acknowledge his divinity. He wants something more. We continue on in the passage.、Let's、see if I can get this to work. Here we go. So he begins to teach the disciples that he must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, 
he's going to be killed and after three days he's going to rise again and so jesus then talks about the nature of his work not only uh, not jesus's primary function is not to receive glory and honor and worship but rather he's going to come and sacrifice his life for the sake of humanity and as he shares this peter doesn't like this and so in verse 32 peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke jesus and in verse 33 but when jesus turned and looked at his disciples he rebuked peter get behind me satan he said you do not have in mind the concerns of god but merely human concerns so jesus here says peter i need you to be in tune with my heart not just my identity Verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd to himself and he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, this is a really famous passage, and even though the principle from which Jesus is, or excuse me, even though the truth that Jesus is trying to teach is um, this idea of self-sacrifice, I believe that there is this hidden message within this passage. And that hidden message is that if you look at verse 35, you can find life. By prioritizing God and for me when I look at that phrase finding or that word finding life it's a deeper understanding of yourself it's a change in the quality of life that you live it's not a self-centered life it's a giving life and as you give you discover more about who you are in closing I want to share two quotes from David Benner David Benner writes, People who have never developed a deep personal knowing of God will be limited in the depth of their personal knowing of themselves. Failing to know God, they will be unable to know themselves, as God is the only context in which their being makes sense. Similarly, people who are afraid to look deeply at themselves will of course be equally afraid to look deeply at God. For such persons, Ideas about God provide a substitute for direct experience of God. Knowing God and knowing self are therefore interdependent. Neither can proceed very far without the other. Paradoxically, we come to know God best, not by looking at God exclusively, but by looking at God and then looking at ourselves, then looking at God and then again looking at ourselves. This is also the way we best come to know ourselves. Both God and self are mostly fully known in relationship to each other. So today, as you consider this idea and consider uh, the, the scripture that we've read together, um, it's my prayer that as you search for God, that God will, would reveal to yourself deeper truths of yourself. And may you experience the freedom of that different quality of life um, as you journey through life with God um, 
may you develop spirituality, uh, may you develop maturity, uh, may you mature, and may you experience the freedom that is found in Christ. May God bless you. Would you join me as we close for prayer? Father God, as we think about this idea of journeying with you, I pray that you would reveal truth about ourselves. I pray that we would find a deeper quality of life. And as a result, may we see you clearly from that experience. May we come to know you intimately. Father, I want to thank you for the Melbourne City Adventist Church, for the people who are a part of this community of faith. And I just want to pray that you watch over them over the next five days um, as we go through this lockdown. Um, I pray that it would be a time to be able to slow down, um, to catch up on things that have piled up. And I just pray that you be with us um, and that you journey with us through this, through this short lockdown. We pray these things in your name. Amen.